0: We come to our sermon passage this morning from the book of Isaiah, chapters nine or chapter nine verses 1 through seven. This is a passage and I'll talk about this a little bit more. It was written about seven hundred years before the time of Jesus. Seven hundred years. And to put that in context, that would be from right now. What <laughs> thirteen hundreds? Quite a long time after the time of Jesus. So if you have it in your bulletin, you can read it there or pull it up on your on your phone or um, in your Bible.
1: This is God's word.
0: Good, really beautiful, and true. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee and the nations by, way, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And all those living in the land of deep darkness, all light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's good use in battle, every garment woven in blood, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no need. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of scripture. I thank you for this psalm written now to me 700 years ago. Anticipating in hope, in longing what you up to in the coming of your kingdom to this world. So I pray, Lord, as we read over the shoulders of generations this passage from so long ago, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that you would move upon us in your Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts to show us Jesus here our hearts and love them all the more. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, as I said earlier, we are entering into the season of Advent. And if you come from a church, if you come from not a church background, or you come from a church background that doesn't kind of follow the Advent, Lent, all the different seasons, it might feel like a strange thing. We call this Christmas, right? I remember the first time I heard Advent, I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. Cool sounding word is Latin, by the way. And actually, has the same root word as the word adventure. So you think of adventure, you're setting off on a on a, a, a journey that has a destination you're looking forward to. Advent it means arrival, an excited arrival, not just a regular arrival. Some uh, not cataclysm that's the wrong word, but some uh, transforming arrival. For centuries upon centuries, Christians have set aside the month before Christmas as a season of reflection on the coming of Jesus into our world. And over time, lots of different traditions, and if you go to different countries, it's different traditions, different places you go. Traditions have built up around that, not about seeing how long before Christmas we can put our lights up and not be shamed by our neighbors, but <laughs> traditions have, have, have picked up to remind um, like, look at this candle. We, we lit it before the start of the worship service. You notice there's four candles. This morning, there's only one lit. Next week, there'll be two lit. Week after that, three. And then the Sunday, right there before Christmas, the pink one will be lit. And the idea here is that in the anticipation of what Advent means, the arrival of Jesus into our world, a light is sparked. But at first, it's just a one candle, just a flicker. Till the light of the world comes into the world. Till Jesus arrives to shine his light of life and grace. So that's just one example. There's, there's so many we could go through. But whatever it is across all these cultures, the things around Advent are always built around the ideas of longing and hope. A yearning and a hope. And here's what I mean over time, Advent became a season to purposely slow down. Oddly enough, we think of Christmas time in our world and our culture as this incredibly busy time, and it is. We've got Christmas parties over, we've got Christmas parties here, we've got a tree lighting ceremony on Friday here done, uh, Christmas parade's on Saturday, oh, and Christmas parade's Monday week. It just turns into this very busy thing, and we've got schedules. But what Advent has been throughout history is a purposeful slowing down to attend to the longings of our heart, to look around and see the brokenness of our world. Not a time to cover over it with decorations, but a time to stop, to attend to our parts, and to open our eyes to see what is so we can develop our longings and our hopes according to God's promises of what He is going to do and what God began to do in Jesus' coming to earth. So one of the best ways I think we can see this expressed is if you think about the Christmas songs that have stood the test of time. We sang this morning, one of my very favorites, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And you can see it in there, if I can find the lyrics, so I don't put them off the top of my head. It's a song built up to the ideas of longing and hope. You notice it's a prayer. It's a longing calling out to God to fulfill His promises. To ransom. To come in the midst of our mourning and exile, but then also hope to rejoice. Why? Because Emmanuel shall come. And for us, Emmanuel has come. God with us and Jesus has come to us. But as I prayed earlier, we still live in a time where we haven't seen the fullness of that come into effect. The fullness of what Jesus is doing and make call things new has not a but the people who wrote songs like "O come, O come, o come I mean, or as old as that may be It feels like it's got the weight of generations and generations behind it They weren't the first people to be moved to song in longing and hope In fact, if we look through Scripture one of the most common things I think we'll see is when God moves and acts in history people sing People respond to His promise either looking forward in song or they respond looking back at what He's done Song. And so, what we're going to do this Advent season starting this morning is look at some of the songs of his arrival. Some of the songs of Advent. And this morning I want to look at Isaiah 9, a song that was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. A song of longing and a song of hope. So, let's start here. Isaiah chapter 9, as I said, it's 700 years before the time of Christ. And if you want historical background, a little history lesson here, it's about 730 BC. And what's going on in the world. That it's written in, and Isaiah wrote this. What's going on in the background is the Assyrian army, the Assyrian empire from the east, has come to the Greek capital on the nearest, for Israel. Is. They come in and flex their muscles, and they're taking control of all these different countries and all these different nations, and it's been chaos. And so far, they've come into Israel and they actually caused a decimation in a couple of regions. You notice at the beginning of this passage it mentions Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are places that Assyria had already come into, and their their army had already laid waste. And so that's why Isaiah mentions them. He's not just calling tribe names out of thin air. These are places that had already been invaded and taken over by this strong, impossibly strong Assyrian army. And Galilee as well, where Jesus eventually was from. All these were regions in the north. But friends, this passage this morning isn't just a a window into 2,700 years ago. It's not just a history lesson to us. That's why this passage doesn't begin with just a recording of what happened. It begins, look at the word, the first word, nevertheless. That's a signal to us. That this is a song, not about the destination of the land. It's a song about the interjection of God into history. About what God's going to do. It's nevertheless, in the face of trouble, Isaiah looks beyond even just a better day that might be ahead to see the long view of what God is doing. And that brings me to my first point. I've got a handful of points this morning. The first one is this. We learned from Isaiah, here in chapter 9, that our hope is founded on the actions of God. Our hope is founded on the actions of God. The hope in this passage is grounded in what God will do. Look at verse 2. What's going to happen? A light will dawn on those in darkness. It does not picture of people that are stuck in darkness rubbing some sticks together to make their own bonfire. And now they can see. The picture is God shines a light on them. It's like if we stand outside. We go out in the morning. Don't, don't get up at 5.30 to do this. But if you're up in the morning and you see the sun coming up, you have nothing to do with that. You're standing there watching. This is the picture. People are stuck in darkness, but a light will dawn. Verse 3, what will happen? God will bring joy to his people. It uses the images of God enlarging the nation, which does, don't think of it here as God is like a cosmic real estate agent who's making the acreage bigger in the nation. That's not the idea. It's the idea of God increasing his kingdom and knowing. And what does that mean for his people? An increase in joy. Why? Because God's kingdom is a kingdom of joy. It's the place for His joy, which for God is eternal. God needs nothing. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal relationship of love. The kingdom of God is a place where that love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit becomes ours. It becomes a place where the love that is His, that He delights in, enlarges to include us. His kingdom is a kingdom of joy, a place where his delight is shared. Again, this is God. Verse 3 continues. Isaiah paints a picture of God's people delighting in two things. It speaks of harvest. Notice it speaks of harvest. So nature, they're they're, they're doing the normal stuff of agriculture. They're harvesting the crops that have been planted and and, and raised. But it also speaks of them uh, getting the spoils of victory. Those are the two images, harvest and victory. Harvest is the gaining of good in nature, and that's God making things work the way they're supposed to. Crops aren't supposed to be destroyed by (laughs) pestilence. They're supposed to yield a harvest. And the picture here is God making things work the way they ought to. And victory, that's the gaining of good through God's purposes being accomplished in history. Speaks of the warrior gaining the spoils of victory. And the joy that is ours is not just one of Jesus making things work good for us, it's Him winning a victory for us and bringing us the spoils of that victory. The point is this God's action is the focus in this passage. God's action, not ours. It's Him who brings this joy about, not us. He accomplishes and by His grace He makes us sharers in His victory. So the point in this passage that Isaiah is celebrating, the thing that has driven him to song is a hope that is based on the actions of God. Not on the actions that one day in the future people might get it right. His hope is that God will break in and make His light shine in darkness. And that brings me to my second Not only is our hope founded on the actions of God, our hope is assured. Our hope is assured. Now notice something about this song. I I mentioned that it's written 700 years before the time of Jesus. Notice the tense that it uses throughout. Isaiah speaks of the future in terms of the past. The way he writes it, the way he is singing here, he's speaking as if it's already happened. It's almost like his confidence of these things his hope is so assured that it's already happened. So he's already describing it as if it's past. Friends, for us, for the people of God, whose hope is founded in his actions, that's the nature of our hope. It isn't just a hope for us. It's not just a choice to be optimistic about the future. You know, sometimes we can describe hope as a, as a foolish thing. Almost like we put blinders on because we want to be hopeful. So we don't look at everything. We want to be hopeful, which just means we want to be uh, optimistic. We want to look at the glass and say it's half full. And it might be full some more in the future. But for us, for those responding to the grace of Jesus, hope is not just a choice to be optimistic about the future. It's not just buying a lottery ticket and wishing for the best. Our hope, because it's founded on the action There's numerous times in the New Testament where it speaks about our inheritance being held for us in heaven, our life being hidden in Christ with God. We have an inheritance that will never spoil or fade or rust because it's kept for us. The idea there is that the future is assured. And the grace that we receive in the here and now is almost like a down payment for the future. In fact, the Holy Spirit is spoken of that way, the presence of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. To bend us out from our selfishness toward God and toward other people, it's a down payment. So even those small indications of growth and grace that we receive in our heart, these are assurances that God is at work. And that the fullness of what God has purchased in one in Jesus will come to be. Our hope is assured and in a sense brings the future into the present. Or for Isaiah brings it to the past. so He can, he can speak of it like it's already happened. We see that in this passage in verse 4. It refers back to a time in Israel's history, long before Isaiah. So this is 700 years before the time of Jesus. When it speaks about the day of Midian's defeat, that was 400 years before Isaiah. And he's talking about something actually reported for us in the book of Judges. Now, if you want to get the press, read the book of Judges. Um, it's not a very hopeful book, but it describes something that happened. If you know the story of Gideon, that's what he's talking about. The day of Midian's defeat. Midian was a much more powerful foe who was putting uh, the people of Israel uh, under bondage. It talks about the rod of the oppressor, the the burden on their shoulders in here. That's what it's speaking about. God had defended his people from oppression from the strong Midianites. But the picture here is military over false kings. Notice it speaks about the future is is suffering under burdensome labor at the hands of overlords. But in God's actions, there will be no more burdens, no more blows, no more tyrants. Here the clothing of of oppressive warfare. Notice what happens to a warrior's clothes and his boots, they are burned. It's a lot like Isaiah speaking about uh, swords being beat into plowshares. The weapons of violence being turned into things that cause flourishing. Here, the, the guard of those who come against people, those who work in violence in this world, are overcome and transformed. But I mention all that because of this. Isaiah reaches into this history, this Gideon history, the day of Midian's defeat, not just to say, hey, remember that time God did something cool and he's going to do it again? No, he, he calls it into the song by way of contrast. And here's what I mean. God had offended his people from oppression Of the Midianites in the book of Judges, that the aftermath of that was just chaos. The aftermath of that, God's people turned to idolatry. They fled from God. And in fact, they became exactly like the Midianites who had oppressed them. So Isaiah isn't saying, God's going to do something cool and not mess it up again. What Isaiah is doing, he's calling this to mind, he's calling this to imagination in this song, to say God is going to do something more. Because what had happened in Judges, what had happened in this victory over the Midianites, is that God had worked, but the response to what God had done didn't match. Didn't match up. God had done something, and the response did not match up. The hope of Isaiah here is not just that God will do what he'd done before. That wouldn't be an assured hope. Remember, the hope is assured. It would just be history repeating itself. But this passage looks forward to a time when the human response to God's actions will match. When the human response to God's actions will match. When the light shines, what happens? The people see. It looks forward to a time when joy is increased and they will rejoice. They will enter a kingdom of peace under a perfect king. And this is how, this is our hope, this is how we can be assured that the human response I've said matches the actions of God. It's because in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus called or God called forth His Son. And the eternal Son of God became a human being. This is the scandal of the Incarnation. This is why Advent is, from the outside, ridiculous. But you know how God assures these purposes for us will be accomplished, he becomes one of us. To ensure that the response to his actions matches. And the beauty is, by faith, we are included in Jesus. We are united to him. And so now, all that he did, all that he accomplished, that response to God and his actions that matched, it becomes ours because we're joined to Jesus. And we don't have to wonder, am I going to flub the response to God's grace to me? Because you are. <laughs> By yourself, you are. But we're joining Jesus. So even our flawed responses are cleansed and lifted up. And we don't have to fear that my response hasn't been matching up to God's. Because God knew it would. And in becoming one of us, He joins us to Him. So that right response is already taken care of. And now we can operate as children. Delighted in children. You don't have to wonder when I bring... Uh, sometimes I think we think of God like uh, we're kids and we're going to draw a picture. We're going to bring it to him and put it on the fridge and he's going to like, this is terrible. Rip it up. Right? But now, because of Jesus. Because the bedrock of all of the questions of if God can love us are taken care of. We can draw the most ridiculous pictures. <laughs> we can bring these small pictures and trust that God's not going to look at them and throw them away. He's not going to rip them up and say, this is terrible. He's going to delight it. He's going to put it on the fridge, so to speak. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to keep working. Our hope is assured because it's founded.
1: And that brings us
0: to, back to our passage, our hope is assured because it isn't a thing and our hope is not an emotion. Our hope is a person. Our hope is a person. How can Isaiah be sure that the human response to God's actions won't devolve into chaos like it did before? Or didn't that because of the in the words of the Gospel of John that God will become one of us it's something that has absolutely captured my heart and mind because it means this, that God has ensured that human response to his actions will match that the coming of Jesus and taking on flesh he becomes Emmanuel, God with us and as I prayed earlier never forevermore never God apart from us that God has chosen to be God with us chosen, that is what He's going to be. God with us. By the Holy Spirit, God in us. And God, Jesus, in uh, God, called forth the of virgin Mary, and the new humanity and sins. One who would respond rightly. One who would not grasp for power. One who would not act in selfishness and sin. One who would not fail.
1: And notice how it's put in this passage.
0: The hope founded not on an emotion. Remember, hope's not an emotion. Hope is not a thing. Hope is a person. Notice how and not hope tenderly. Um, But notice how it's put in this passage. Verse 6, the government will be upon his shoulders. The point is this, the kingdom of God is coming in this child, and his reign over his people will be dependent not on the people in the kingdom, but on the child. And this is a profound security. It is when the government is on this child's shoulders that the people's shoulders will be unburdened in this song. And then look at the list of titles given to show the fullness of this, this child's kingship. Notice the nouns and the adjectives, the titles and the descriptors. He's not just a counselor who gives good advice. He's a wonderful counselor. The idea is there's this baffling wisdom, wisdom beyond our understanding. He's called the mighty God. Not the impotent God, not the gods of like ancient Greece who stand off on Mount Olympus and can't do anything and are capricious. This is the mighty God, who's mighty in
1: power, and this is
0: the everlasting Father. Now, this isn't Isaiah getting confused about his Trinitarian relationships and calling Jesus the Son, and the Father. The idea here is the child becomes the King of God's kingdom, and the idea of a King as the Father of a kingdom—it's good news. If you have a perfect and a just king, that becomes a father who can fill the place of imperfect fathers. A father who supplies. A father who never lacks. A father who loves. And the good news for us is him as the quote-unquote father over God's kingdom is one whose reign never ends. And he is what? The Prince of Peace. He brings peace, not war. In verse 7, of the greatness of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. It's not simply a, a temporary apex of glory. It's not like Alexander the Great, who goes and conquers the known world, but he's dead. Very quickly. And then the, the, the empire you over falls into chaos. It's not this temporary spike in glory of the government, this kingdom, of this peace that the child brings, there's no peace king will reign over God's kingdom forever and establishing and upholding justice and righteousness forever. The psalm points us to this. The greatness of our hope is not just that God will give us good things it's that God gives us himself we get swept up into the eternal love and joy that exists between father, son and spirit. For us hope is not a thing I said hope is not just an optimism. Hope is not a stubborn refusal to give up Our hope is an optimism that the world that looks at the world with rose-covered glasses. Our hope is a person, a person who loves us. Optimism can't love us. Things can't love us, but a person who loves us, a person who acts to bring us to himself, a person who desires to dwell with us and us with him, who sets his delight on us and he becomes our delight. Because our hope is not a thing. It's not an emotion, it's not a mindset. When we talk about hope in this Advent season, friends, it's not something that you need to go home and work up within yourself. It's not a virtue that you need to form. It's not something we draw from within ourselves. Our hope is a person. And that means that our hope does not depend on us. Our hope is not an action that we take. Our hope is entirely wrapped up in the determination of God to bring these purposes about. Which brings me back to the very beginning of what i talked talking about. Advent is a season of longing and a season of hope. Because our hope is assured, because our hope is founded on the actions of God, and because our hope is a person, we don't have to close our eyes to the world around us. Um, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, there's a new variant, and it's terrifying when you think about it. Try to not read uh, uh, too much about it because it can go spinning. But we don't have to pretend like that's not there um, in this season. We don't have to pretend like we don't hurt or grieve the loss of people that we love. When there's empty chairs at a table at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Our hope isn't optimism. Our hope is not an emotion that we have Work up within ourselves. And so if we feel depressed, we don't have to say, well, I'm lacking here. You know, don't say depression is great. It's not. Anxiety is not great. Those things. But hope is not a mindset. It's not something that, for Christian hope, it is founded on God. And we have hope because He holds us, not because we hold on to Him strongly. So this advocacy.
1: As we pray for God
0: to work within us to develop our longings and our yearnings to convince this imperfect world, we pray for Him to develop our yearnings that they wouldn't just be selfish. Because so often our longings can just be selfish. We might uh, direct our longings toward wanting to have a, a new car. And that might even be bad. You might have a car that doesn't run, and you're longing for a car that runs so you can get to work or something. But we limit our hopes and our longings to small things that are things that are too small and things that are too selfish. So as, as we develop our ideas about our longings and our hope in this season, let's ask God to enlarge our hearts as He enlarges His kingdom here. That the things we hope in might be the joy of God being developed. Not joy in things, but the joy of God. Not just in our own hearts, but the hearts of our fellow church members, the hearts of the people in our community.
1: The hope we have in God's actions assured sure to us, is
0: not a hope that's meant to pacify us. It's not God saying, shut up and deal with it. I'm going to work more later. The hope that is ours is meant to create and grow within us To become one of us. To face all of the loneliness, the sin against him, all the frailty of our world, to take it on his shoulders, to wear it, to face the indignity of his crucifixion, the scorning and the abandonment of friends. see this Isaiah did not see this come to be with his faith because it was founded in you could know this was sure and so Lord as we are a people whose, whose hope is founded not in ourselves but in you work in us God open our eyes to the eyes of faith that never think of ourselves and never think of our world apart from you Working us to form us after you, to form our longings, to form our hope. And God, and changing us to be like you, send us out into a world to be witnesses.